Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some dies. Come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Dies, don't you tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Thirteen at table by Lord Dunsany. In front of a spacious fireplace of the old kind, when the logs were well alight and men with pipes and glasses were gathered before it in great easeful chairs, and the wild weather outside and the comfort that was within, and the season of the year, for it was Christmas, and the hour of the night, all called for the weird or uncanny, then out spoke the ex-master of foxhounds and told this tale, it was when I had the Bromley and Sydenham, the year I gave them up. As a matter of fact, it was the last day of the season. It was no use going on because there were no foxes left in the county and London was sweeping down on us. You could see it from the kennels all along the skyline like a terrible army in grey. And masses of villas every year came skirmishing down our valleys. Our coverts were mostly on the hills. And as the town came down upon the valleys, the foxes used to leave them and go right away out of the county, and they never returned. I think they went by night and moved great distances. Well, it was early April, and we had drawn a blank all day, and at the last draw of all, at the very last of the season, we found a fox. He left the covert with his back to London and its railways and villas and wire, and slipped away towards the chalk country and open Kent. I felt as I once felt as a child on one summer's day when I found a door in a garden where I played left luckily ajar, and I pushed it open and wide lands were before me, and waving fields of corn. We settled down into a steady gallop, and the fields began to drift by under us, and a great wind arose full of fresh breath. We left the clay lands where the bracken grows and came to a valley at the edge of the chalk. As we went down into it, we saw the fox go up the other side like a shadow that crosses the evening and glide into a wood that stood on the top. We saw a flash of primroses in the wood and we were out the other side, hounds hunting perfectly and the fox still going absolutely straight. It began to dawn on me then that we were in for a great hunt. I took a deep breath when I thought of it, the taste of the air of that perfect spring afternoon as it came to one galloping and the thought of a great run were together like some old rare wine. Our faces now were to another valley. Large fields led down to it with easy hedges. At the bottom of it a bright blue stream went singing and a rambling village smoked. The sunlight on the opposite slopes danced like a fairy. And all along the top old woods were frowning, but they dreamed of spring. The field had fallen off and were far behind, and my only human companion was James, my old first whip, who had a hound's instinct and a personal animosity against a fox that even embittered his speech. Across the valley, the fox went as straight as a railway line, and again we went without check straight through the woods at the top. I remember hearing men sing or shout as they walked home from work, and sometimes children whistled. The sounds came up from the village to the woods at the top of the valley. After that, we saw no more villages, but valley after valley arose and fell before us, as though we were voyaging some strange and stormy sea, and all the way before us the fox went dead upwind like the fabulous flying Dutchman. There was no one in sight now but my first whip and me. We had both of us got on to our second horses as we drew the last covert. 
Two or three times we checked in those great lonely valleys beyond the village. But I began to have inspirations. I felt a strange certainty within me that this fox was going on straight upwind till he died, or until night came and we could hunt no longer. So I reversed ordinary methods and only cast straight ahead, and always we picked up the scent again at once. I believe that this fox was the last one left in the villa-haunted lands, and that he was prepared to leave them for remote uplands far from men, that if we had come the following day, he would not have been there, and that we just happened to hit off his journey. Evening began to descend upon the valley, still the hounds drifted on, like the lazy but unresting shadows of clouds upon a summer's day. We heard a shepherd calling to his dog. We saw two maidens move towards a hidden farm, one of them singing softly. No other sounds but ours disturbed the leisure and the loneliness of haunts that seemed not yet to have known the inventions of steam and gunpowder. Even as China, they say, in some of her further mountains does not yet know that she has fought Japan. And now the day and our horses were wearing out, but that resolute fox held on. I began to work out the run and wonder where we were. The last landmark I had ever seen before must have been over five miles back, and from there to the start was at least ten miles more. If only we could kill. Then the sun set. I wondered what chance we had of killing our fox. I looked at James's face as he rode beside me. He did not seem to have lost any confidence, yet his horse was as tired as mine. It was a good, clear twilight, and the scent was as strong as ever, and the fences were easy enough, but those valleys were terribly trying, and they still rolled on and on. It looked as if the light would at last all possible endurance both of the fox and the horses if the scent held good, and he did not go to ground, otherwise night would end it. For long we had seen no houses and no roads, only chalk slopes with a twilight on them, and here and there some sheep and scattered copses darkening in the evening. At some moment I seemed to realise all at once that the light was spent and the darkness was hovering. I looked at James. He was solemnly shaking his head. Suddenly, in a little wooded valley, we saw climb over the oaks the red-brown gables of a queer old house. At that instant, I saw the fox scarcely heading by fifty yards. We blundered through a wood in full sight of the house, but no avenue led up to it or even a path, nor were there any signs of wheel marks anywhere. Already lights shone here and there in windows. We were in a park, and a fine park, but unkempt beyond credibility. Brambles grew everywhere. It was too dark to see the fox any more, but we knew he was dead beat, the hounds were just before us, and a four-foot railing of oak. I shouldn't have tried it on a fresh horse at the beginning of a run, and here was a horse near his last gasp. But what a run! An event standing out in a lifetime, and the hounds close up on their fox slipping into the darkness as I hesitated. I decided to try it. My horse rose about eight inches and took it fair with his breast, and the oak log flew into handfuls of wet decay, it rotten with years. And then we were on a lawn, and at the far end of it the hounds were tumbling over their fox. Fox, hounds and light were all done together, at the end of a twenty-mile point. We made some noise then, but nobody came out of the queer old house. I felt pretty stiff as I walked round to the hall door with the mask and the brush while James went with the hounds and the two horses to look for the stables. 
I rang a bell, marvellously encrusted with rust, and after a long while the door opened a little way, revealing a hall with much old armour in it and the shabbiest butler that I had ever known. I asked him who lived there. Sir Richard Arlen. I explained that my horse could go no further that night, and that I wished to ask Sir Richard Arlen for a bed for the night. Oh, no one ever comes here, sir, said the butler. I pointed out that I had come. I don't think it would be possible, sir, he said. This annoyed me, and I asked to see Sir Richard and insisted until he came. Then I apologised and explained the situation. He looked only fifty, but a varsity oar on the wall with the date of the early seventies made him older than that. His face had something of the shy look of the hermit. He regretted that he had not room to put me up. I was sure that this was untrue. Also, I had to be put up there. There was nowhere else within miles, so I almost insisted. Then, to my astonishment, he turned to the butler and they talked it over in an undertone. At last they seemed to think that they could manage it, though clearly with reluctance. It was by now seven o'clock, and Sir Richard told me he dined at half-past seven. There was no question of clothes for me other than those I stood in, as my host was shorter and broader. He showed me presently to the drawing-room, and there he reappeared before half-past seven in evening dress and a white waistcoat. The drawing-room was large and contained old furniture, but it was rather worn than venerable. An Aubusson carpet flapped about the floor. The wind seemed momently to enter the room, and old draughts haunted corners. The stealthy feet of rats that were never at rest indicated the extent of the ruin that time had wrought in the wainscot. Somewhere far off a shutter flapped to and fro. The guttering candles were insufficient to light so large a room. The gloom that these things suggested was quite in keeping with Sir Richard's first remark to me after he entered the room. I must tell you, sir, that I have led a wicked life. Oh, a very wicked life. Such confidences from a man much older than oneself after one has known him for half an hour are so rare that any possible answer merely does not suggest itself. I said rather slowly, Oh, really? And chiefly to forestall another such remark, I said, What a charming house you have. Yes, he said. I have not left it for nearly forty years, since I left the varsity. One is young there, you know, and one has opportunities, but I make no excuses no excuses, and the door slipping its rusty latch came drifting on the draught into the room, and the long carpet flapped and the hangings upon the walls, then the draught fell rustling away, and the door slammed to again. Ah, Marianne, he said, we have a guest tonight, Mr. Linton, this is Marion Gibb, and everything became clear to me. Mad, I said to myself, for no one had entered the room. The rats ran up the length of the room behind the wainscot ceaselessly, and the wind unlatched the door again, and the folds of the carpet fluttered up to our feet and stopped there, for our weight held it down. Let me introduce Mr. Linton, said my host, Lady Mary Erinyer. The door slammed back again. I bowed politely. Even had I been invited, I should have humoured him, but it was the very least that an uninvited guest could do. This kind of thing happened eleven times, the rustling and the fluttering of the carpet and the footsteps of the rats and the restless door, and then the sad voice of my host introducing me to phantoms. Then, for some while, we waited while I struggled with the situation. Conversation flowed slowly, and again the draught came trailing up the room, 
while the flaring candles filled it with hurrying shadows. Ah, late again, Sicily, said my host in his soft, mournful way. Always late, Sicily. Then I went down to dinner with that man and his mind, and the twelve phantoms that haunted it. I found a long table with fine old silver on it and places laid for fourteen. The butler was now sitting in evening dress. There were fewer draughts in the dining room. The scene was less gloomy here. "'Will you sit next to Rosalind at the other end?' Richard said to me. "'She always takes the head of the table.' "'I wronged her most of all.' "'I said, I shall be delighted.' "'I looked at the butler closely, "'but never did I see by any expression of his face "'or by anything that he did "'any suggestion that he waited upon less than fourteen people "'in the complete possession of all their faculties. "'Perhaps a dish appeared to be refused more often than taken, "'but every glass was equally filled with champagne.' At first I found little to say, but when Sir Richard, speaking from the far end of the table, said, "'You're tired, Mr. Linton,' I was reminded that I owed something to a host upon whom I had forced myself. It was excellent champagne, and with the help of a second glass I made the effort to begin a conversation with a Miss Helen Erold, whom the place upon one side of me was laid. It came more easy to me very soon. I frequently paused in my monologue like Mark Antony for a reply— and sometimes I turned and spoke to Miss Rosalind Smith. Sir Richard, at the other end, talked sorrowfully on. He spoke as a condemned man might speak to his judge, and yet somewhat as a judge might speak to one that he once condemned wrongly. My own mind began to turn to mournful things. I drank another glass of champagne, but I was still thirsty. I felt as if all the moisture in my body had been blown away over the downs of Kent by the wind-up which we had galloped. Still, I was not talking enough. My host was looking at me. I made another effort. After all, I had something to talk about. A twenty-mile point is not often seen in a lifetime, especially south of the Thames. I began to describe the run to Rosalind Smith. I could see then that my host was pleased. The sad look in his face gave a kind of flicker, like mist upon the mountains on a miserable day when a faint puff comes from the sea and the mist would lift if it could and the butler refilled my glass very attentively. I asked her first if she hunted, and paused and began my story. I told her where we had found the fox and how fast and straight he had gone, and how I had got through the village by keeping to the road, while the little gardens and wire, and then the river had stopped the rest of the field. I told her the kind of country that we had crossed, and how splendid it looked in the spring, and how mysterious the valleys were as soon as the twilight came, and what a glorious horse I had, and how wonderfully he went. I was so fearfully thirsty after the great hunt that I had to stop for a moment now and again. But I went on with my description of that famous run, for I had warmed to the subject, and after all, there was nobody to tell of it but me except my old whipper in, and the old fellow's probably drunk by now, I thought. I described to her minutely the exact spot in the run at which it had come to me clearly that this was going to be the greatest hunt in the whole of the history of Kent. Sometimes I forgot incidents that had happened, as one well may in a run of twenty miles, and then I had to fill in the gaps by inventing. I was pleased to be able to make the party go off well by means of my conversation, and besides that the lady to whom I was speaking was extremely pretty. I do not mean in a flesh-and-blood kind of way, but there were little shadowy lines about the chair beside me that hinted at an unusually graceful figure when Miss Rosalind Smith was alive. 
and I began to perceive that what I first mistook for the smoke of guttering candles and the tablecloth waving in the draught was in reality an extremely animated company who listened, and not without interest, to my story of by far the greatest hunt that the world had ever known. Indeed, I told them that I would confidently go further and predict that never in the history of the world would there be such a run again. Only my throat was terribly dry, and then, as it seemed, they wanted to hear more about my horse. I had forgotten that I had come there on a horse, but when they reminded me, it all came back. They looked so charming, leaning over the table, intent upon what I said, that I told them everything they wanted to know. Everything was going so pleasantly, if only Sir Richard would cheer up. I heard his mournful voice every now and then. These were very pleasant people, if he would only take them the right way. I could understand that he regretted his past, but the early seventies seemed centuries away, and I felt sure that he misunderstood these ladies. They were not revengeful, as he seemed to suppose. I wanted to show him how cheerful they really were, and so I made a joke, and they all laughed at it, and then I chaffed them a bit, especially Rosalind, and nobody resented it in the very least, and still Sir Richard sat there with that unhappy look, like one that has ended weeping because it is vain and has not the consolation even of tears. We had been a long time there, and many of the candles had burned out, but there was light enough. I was glad to have an audience for my exploit, and being happy myself, I was determined Sir Richard should be. I made more jokes, and they still laughed good-naturedly. Some of the jokes were a little broad, perhaps, but no harm was meant. And then, I do not wish to excuse myself, but I had had a harder day than I had ever had before, and without knowing it, I must have been completely exhausted. In this state, champagne had found me, and what would have been harmless at any other time must somehow have got the better of me when quite tired out. Anyhow, I went too far. I made some joke, I cannot in the least remember what, that suddenly seemed to offend them. I felt all at once a commotion in the air. I looked up and saw that they had all risen from the table and were sweeping towards the door. I had not time to open it, but it blew open on a wind. I could scarcely see what Sir Richard was doing, because only two candles were left. I think the rest blew out when the lady suddenly rose. I sprang up to apologise, to assure them, and then fatigue overcame me, as it had overcome my horse at the last fence. I clutched at the table, but the cloth came away, and then I fell. The fall and the darkness on the floor and the pent-up fatigue of the day overcame me all three together. The sun shone over glittering fields and in at a bedroom window, and thousands of birds were chanting to the spring. And there I was, in an old four-poster bed, in a quaint old panelled bedroom, fully dressed and wearing long muddy boots. Someone had taken my spurs, and that was all. For a moment I failed to realise, and then it all came back, my enormity, and the pressing need of an abject apology to Sir Richard. I pulled an embroidered bell-rope until the butler came. He came in perfectly cheerful and indescribably shabby. I asked him if Sir Richard was up, and he said he had just gone down, and told me to my amazement that it was twelve o'clock. I asked to be shown in to Sir Richard at once. He was in his smoking-room. "'Good morning,' he said rather cheerfully, the moment I went in. I went directly to the matter in hand. "'I fear that I insulted some ladies in your house,' I began. "'You did indeed,' he said. "'You did indeed.' And then he burst into tears and took me by the hand. "'How can I ever thank you?' He said to me then. 
We have been thirteen at table for thirty years, and I never dared to insult them, because I had wronged them all. And now you have done it, and I know they will never dine here again. And for a long time he still held my hand, and then he gave it a grip and a kind of a shake, which I took to mean goodbye. And I drew my hand away then, and left the house. And I found James in the stables with the hounds, and asked him how he had fared, and James— who is a man of very few words, said he could not rightly remember. And I got my spurs from the butler and climbed onto my horse, and slowly we rode away from that queer old house, and slowly we wended home, for the hounds were footsore but happy, and the horses were tired still. And when we recalled that the hunting season was ended, we turned our faces to spring, and thought of new things that tried to replace the old. And that very year I heard, and have often heard since, of dances and happier dinners at Sir Richard Arlen's house. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? That was Thirteen at Table by Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, the 18th Baron Dunsany, known as Lord Dunsany or Eddie now, he was born in 1878 in London, and he died in 1957 in Dublin, in Ireland. So he was an Anglo-Irish guy. I wonder what he would have considered his uh, ancestry. He, Plunkett, of course, is, is a famous name in Irish circles, in Irish history. So, and he was acquainted with and a friend of W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory, and he supported the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. He was a bit of an interesting guy. So he was heir to one of the oldest um, peerages in Ireland and his castle in County Meath is near Tara. And if you know anything about Irish history, you'll know that's the, where the High King of Ireland was to be found. And it's, if you ever in, I went on a mythological tour of um, that part, but we went to Bruna Boigne and uh, the Hill of Tara. Uh, what is it? New Grange, that's right. So he's famous, most famous for his book, uh, The King of Elfland's Daughter. But he wrote a lot. He wrote about 90 books, all, all told. And he is considered to be one of the founders of the fantasy genre. And he was certainly, he was an influence on Tolkien. But even people like Neil Gaiman have uh, acknowledged their debt to him. Uh, Lovecraft liked him. Clark Ashton Smith and was impressed by his work. Clark Ashton Smith was impressed by his work. So, But he was a, he was, um, a bit of a cove, really. So he, he was an aristocrat. And he lived this the life of the Anglo-Irish aristocrat. So they were wealthy, the family, um, and um, famous as well. And so St. Oliver Plunkett, the martyred Archbishop of Armagh, was one of his kinsmen. Um, Joseph Plunkett, who was executed for his part in the 1916 Rising. Do you know Sir Richard Burton, who shared the same birthday as me, so it turns out, 19th of March, just gone. Uh, he, he was a famous explorer. He was a cousin so they were um, in that, of that ilk. So he was schooled at Cheam, at Eton College, and the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. So he was kind of a son of the British Empire, uh, and initially in his, uh, in his early days anyway. It's not clear from the notes, but it looks like when he was in Ireland, he was in the army, and when the Easter Rising happened in 1916, he, dro he drove in to offer help and was wounded by a bullet lodged in his skull. Um, but later on, his military belt was lost and it was used in the burial of Michael Collins. 
So it's, I'm not quite sure whose side he was, but I presume he was on the British side because he later went to work in, in, with MI7B1, military intelligence. He was charged during the Irish War of Independence of the, uh, with violating the restoration of order in Ireland regulations. So he perhaps had some Republican sympathies or uh, nationalist sympathies anyway. Massively interesting life. He was a chess master and the pistol champion. And he was appointed Byron Professor of English at Athens when he was wandering Europe in 1940. And he'd come via Istanbul, had to be evacuated when the Germans invaded in 1941. In 1940, he left Ireland and went back to Kent and lived near Rudyard Kipling. And he wrote all these books, you know. Uh, and he died of appendicitis while visiting Ireland and, and was taken ill and went to the hospital in Dublin and died there. Now, well, he was a keen chess player, I think I said that. He invented Dunsany's chess, an asymmetrical chess variant, and it didn't involve any fairy pieces. I don't even know what that means. Uh, and he was champion of the Irish Chess Union, president of the Irish Chess Union and the Kent County Chess Association. So he's a fascinating, fascinating character. What about this story? Well, this story was suggested by Mike Jenkins, and he said you should read this. Now, I'd not really read any Dunsany, and I was I was kind. I came across him not long ago, actually, which is maybe why I decided to read this, because I don't read the suggestions in strict order. I wait until um, some inspiration strikes me. And when we were down in London just before Christmas, I, got a, I went to Watkins Bookshop, which I always do when I go there, and I got this lovely edition of an Arthur Macken book, um, The Hill of Wonders. And um, Dunsany wrote the, the preface, and I thought, oh, actually, it's pretty well written, you know, and thoughtful. So um, I don't know what I expected. I thought he was maybe kind of, you know, because he was an aristocrat, he probably wasn't very good. And he got, it got published because of his name. And, but that isn't true. What a lovely story this was. So it's a lovely short story, and I've done some quite long ones. I did Dorian Gray. It was a big, big piece of work. And then I did uh, The Man Whom the Trees Loved by Algernon Blackwood, which also a big piece of work. So I'm going to do a few more short stories just to balance things out. So the story begins with a fox hunt, and it's a frame story. Again, they always do this, don't they? In the club, at Christmas, in the comfortable chairs. This is early 20th century. They all do this. H.G. Wells does it, E.F. Benson does it, Henry James does it, all of them do it. They're all sitting in the clubs having stories told. And of course, that was a real tradition because we know from M.R. James. And who else was I reading recently also used to do it? One of the Benson brothers. I was re I'm reading their book as well. Not E.F., but his two brothers, R.H. and A.C. And uh, they used to, their stories often begin, you're sitting in your club and you've got these big um, leather chairs and you're having a, a whiskey and the fire's on, and somebody starts to tell the story, so it actually sounds rather splendid. But anyway, this story starts with a spring evening's hunt. Now, I need to say something about fox hunting here. It is this. I'm not a fox hunter. I, you know, little foxes, they seem okay to me, but then I'm not a farmer, and I don't have chickens. But from my point of view, they're quite pretty, and I wouldn't kill them. But, you know, this is a story of its time. This is written by a man to whom this was part of his life. And if we... We have to be careful, you know, and I, and I think it's not, a, a, I say this often, I don't want to censor people, so they did this. It's like Cicero kept slaves. Now, we don't approve of slavery, but it's like saying, so we're not going to read any Cicero. You can't do that. You really can't do that, and you've got to be, have, have nuances, really. So this guy was a fox hunter. 
and it was perfectly normal to him and he didn't think it was a, a bad thing. So let's let's just accept that and move on and not get too offended by that to, to stop our enjoyment of the story because actually the killing of the fox is a very short piece and it, and it is a device to take us into the wild. So it is used, the fox, and if you, if you think about this, the fox, you know in fairy stories, and Dunstan was really interested in fairy stories, the Brothers Grimm was definitely, uh, I read this when I was reading up on him, one of his influences, he, he liked the Brothers Grimm. So we have the fox. The fox in fairy stories can be a helper animal. And the animals, and this is Jung again, they represent the unconscious, they re- represent the natural world. So the fox could be seen as the natural spirit leading him into the depths of the wild. And remember, this is the terra incognita. It's Kent, which is a very cosy, pretty county. I'm very fond of Kent. But it is a wild Kent, you know, if that exists any longer, which I'm not sure it does. So we're taken into the wilds and that, and you know, M.R. James said we need to put distance between ourselves and the supernatural. So whether that be, um, we, we set things in a different country, we set things in the past, uh, and so they become more believable. And this is what it does. The spirit of the fox leads us to this very strange place, which is set apart, sequestered from the world. And therefore, because of this, we are more prepared to accept supernatural happenings. I mean, we are by the genre anyway, but, you know, we could say this. And the other thing that struck me was a man at hounds, a gentleman at hounds, could expect another gentleman whose house he comes across to offer him a bed for the night, you know, because they are joined with their gentlemanliness of the same class. And, you know, it wasn't such a big class. They would know people who knew people. They'd been to the same schools, same same universities and things like that, worked been in the army, been in the foreign service, you know. So they all knew each other. I once got in real trouble for that, um, for saying that, but that was another story many years ago when I was rounded upon as a chippy oik for saying that. But it is, in fact, to my observation that it's true that I'm a chippy oik, yes. I'll tell you this story. I was working somewhere, and we had a guy seconded to us from Canada, and he said what he'd been amazed of with the British establishment was that the way that the, the military and the legal, the judges, and the politicians, and the civil servants all worked so well together. And I said, well, they all went to the same school, didn't they? And a man, they shot me down. I'm still right, though. Anyway, another, so I've, we've managed to talk about fox hunting and <laughs> class war in, in one story. So you're probably all deeply offended. And if we're going off to write a comment on the YouTube, I can't believe how awful, etc. Anyway, never mind. So the story, though, get back to the story, Tony, is good. And it's so oh, sweet. I really loved the the nature run at the beginning, at the end, because when he wakes up, the birds are all calling to the spring. Beautiful. And he's in this wonderful country house. Can you imagine how lovely that would be? It's full of armour. And there's gardens and there's birds. Okay, it's a bit overgrown, but it's like fairyland. It really is like fairyland, which, of course, it is. There are all these women who seem rather sweet. And first of all, our man, our Mr. Linton, our protagonist, I was going to say our hero, he thinks this guy's nuts. So Richard Arlen, crackers. But then, because he's tired, and, and Dunstan gives us the explanation, you know, he was really tired, he was dehydrated, he kept having to drink more wine, and he was also dog-tired. So, you know, he starts to see the little ruffles that and he starts to actually be able to distinguish between the personalities of the different ladies and so very slowly and subtly we go from 
complete scepticism to complete belief where he's actually trying his best to entertain these ladies. We're not told what Sir Richard Arlen, who has lived a wicked life, has done, but we presume that he was somewhat of a rake, that he has wronged these ladies. And Mr Linton, our fox man, our fox hunter, he offends the girls and he has no idea what he said. And that, that happens to me a lot as well. You know, you've had a few drinks, you think you're the life and soul, you're telling your tales, everybody's roaring with laughter, and then suddenly you go, uh-oh, I've said something here. They've all got up and left. I wonder what I said. But, you know, like me, he was mortified. He didn't mean to upset them. And then he collapses due to the champagne and fatigue, and he wakes up. And what's really sweet is, you know, it isn't, it isn't one of those that wakes up, and it was all a dream. And, oh, no, there wasn't. And I wondered when I was reading it if that's what was going to happen, that it was going to be, no, there was nobody there. You, what, you've dreamt it, old dude. You've just arrived. He wouldn't have said dude, obviously. Sirrah, you've dreamt, dreamt it all, my old chap. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. He says, oh, thanks. Thank you so much. I didn't like to offend them because I've offended them before, so I didn't feel I could, you know. So I've put up with them for 30 years, every night, and now they've gone. And what is also very sweet is there's a happy ending. And Sir Richard Arlen is having dances and dinners and is having a great time, even though he's kind of an old guy by this time. He's an old bloke. So what a sweet story that was. I have many, many suggestions. I've got so many suggestions now. Keep them coming in. I write them down on my spreadsheet. Don't get offended when I don't read them straight away. I've had this as well. Well, I, I subscribed to your channel and I recommended you read The Mysteries of Don Juan by who's that guy? Carlos Castaneda. And you didn't read it within the week. Therefore, I unsubscribed. I came across a phrase which I heard before. People who collect slights. So, you know, some people go around looking for things to be offended about. And if you do that, you will be offended. But I never mean to offend anybody. Let me think about that. No, I don't. Okay. Anyway, 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 it's turned warm here. I'm sitting in my room at the top of the house. I've got my two skulls, the golden skull, which you may see in some of the videos. I've given up doing videos now of me and a black wax skull that Imogen got me. I bought my own golden skull and they're looking at me. What do they want? Maybe they want to go out. Shade the dog isn't here or else uh, she'd want to go out. Uh, the other day, actually, I don't think she wanted to go out. I think I thought she wanted to go out, so I was standing by the back door. And I got this impression that she thought, oh, oh, he wants to go out. You know, she thought I wanted to go out, and she thought she'd keep me company. So she saw me standing by the door, and she thought, oh, he must want to go out. I'll keep the old fella company, you know. So out we went. I thought she was going out to have a little wee, and she didn't. <laughs> I'm going, what, what do you want? And she looked at me. Uh, anyway, I like shade. So I am a dog lover. I keep saying that. Anyway, bye-bye, because I can ramble for England. Bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?